where were we? I, oh, yes. I respect This is the right. same old thing we went through yesterday. You can quote verse after verse after verse all day long that shows Gentile inclusion in, in Israel's blessings. Nobody is denying that. We want to take in all the data, and we want you to prove how Gentile inclusion obviates Israel's distinctiveness as per Romans 11. Now I'm going to say it again. Nobody's willing to deal with Romans 11. This is the exposition of it. You show, the in, you show Gentile involvement. You show Gentile unity with Israel. We all agree. But where is Israel's distinctiveness ever annulled? And that's what it comes down to. Don't, you, you want to stay. The essence of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is not all Israel is Israel. Israel as a nation has no distinctives. Every distinctive that was given to Israel as a nation, body politic, was given to them in the Old Covenant. They did not keep that covenant. If Hebrews 8 says that covenant is finished and a new covenant is made with the house of Israel, Israel as a nation has no distinctives. The one thing the Jew hated was there's no longer Jew or Gentile. We're talking about something that, and, and, and secondly, in, in Fred's insistence here, we are talking down. about how a New Testament writer inspired by the Holy Ghost interprets a prophecy in Jeremiah that concerns the nation of Israel. And he spiritualizes it and makes it to mean the church. No, he, doesn't, he doesn't say include Gentiles in Hebrews 8. He says, here is a covenant. That covenant entirely is finished. And he prophesied of old he was going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. He has now made that covenant. With whom has he made it? The true people of God. Could I, could I, Rest my case. Could I, could I just speak to what Fred had to say before you address that other issue? Okay, come on up here though. Just regarding the matter of Israel and the nation and the fact that as I, as I gather what continually seems to be repeated is the, the matter that Israel had no national or, or uh, corporate identity until Sinai. Is this, is this what? That, that, the that the institutions given to them under the covenant of priesthood, sacrifice, meeting place, whether tabernacle or temple, this is what, that's what's being said, though. Yes, a, they, that, that, that was the point at which they became a nation before but, God. But according to the book of Exodus, chapter 2, when they were yet in Egypt, God remembered his covenant when he heard their groaning. Whose groaning did he hear? Yeah. A nation. They were not a constituted nation under a covenant, but they were still a people whose cry God heard on the basis not of the Sinaitic covenant, which was subsequent to that, but on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant in which God had made promises to a seed. Now that, that's Exodus 2. It says, And it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up to God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered 
his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. There we have that, that entity, whatever you want to call it. They're called the children of Israel in Scripture there. And the basis on which God deals with them as a body, as an entity, is the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's, that's prior to Sinai. That's what I'm agreeing with, David. But it seems that's, to me that John's negating that, that by saying their corporate identity is dependent upon Sinai, not according to Exodus chapter 2. No, I don't think that's... Well, you've made that statement several times that their temple, their sacrifices, etc. is what gave them a corporate identity. No, I, I, don't, uh, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think, I think what he's saying is that are these promises made to those who continue to be, and are, and are these who continue to be ethnic Israelites, are they beloved? That is, the elect within this nation, ultimately, which will be the converted nation? However that comes about, are they the, beloved these are the elect within the elect. They are the elect of Israel that we're talking about in reality. No, none of us envision a time when non-elect Israelites are going to be restored. Right, but I believe the point at which Lloyd uh, quibbled with you is when you said the elect within Israel. He's saying at that future point, the elect and Israel will be synonymous in regard to that nation, those who are descendants of Abraham in view. Yes, and, and I think that's simply because he didn't understand what I was saying. Right. But I, I, mean, I think it's a valid distinction because Paul's point is it's not the elect within Israel at that point. No longer a remnant, but, but the totality of the but nation. But the elect within Israel can be coextensive with Israel itself. If, if you're, if you're going to make that and that's very what clear, I'm saying. I think that's what Lloyd was that's trying what I'm to saying. press that, for. Yeah. I, th I see that as a possibility. Yeah. Well, I, I don't see that as a necessity in that passage, but I do see that as a possibility. Right. I think that was okay. his concern to make sure it was spelled out so clearly that we're not dealing with a remnant within but but but, but then my point would be even though they are coextensive at that point it is still God fulfilling his promise not to them as natural seed but to them as the elect of God yes I would agree with that but if God and his sovereign purpose is pleased to incorporate them as the natural descendants making them spiritual seed by giving them a new heart pouring out the spirit of grace and supplications on them so that they look on him whom they pierced and mourn for him. Are we going to argue that their national identity becomes a stumbling block to God's gracious design for them? That's another thing that I seem to be detecting. No, I don't. I would say no. I... It's the last question over here. Thank you. When my wife and I came to register Monday afternoon, they were running short on beds, and they apologized. And they said, uh, unfortunately, you're going to have to sleep in an amillennial bed. <laughs> and i got to tell you, after two nights in that bed, there's at least three lumps in it. <laughs> well, in, in, that, in, that case, in, ga in that case, direct your questions to the elderly gentleman on your left. <laughs> One of them is that um, in Scripture, I see where there are things that are typological. For instance, uh, the Sabbath as a type in many of the ceremonies and observances with the temple and the priesthood. But I don't see where you can paint with such a broad brush to say that everything pertaining to Israel is typological and to reduce everything that is um, concerning Israel in the Old Testament to a type to be replaced by an anti-type. I think that may be painting with a rather broad brush, and I'm having a problem with that. Okay, that's, what specific... That's one lump. <laughs> Before you go into the other lumps, can you, can you tell me what aspect of Israel you, th you see as not being typical? 
their national status, for one. Their experiences are typological, well, and many of the uh, experiences that they had in the Old Testament, if you look through and study what the New Testament says, and I'm sticking with the New Testament now, what it says was typological. It does not ever say that Israel in toto, as a nation, was a type of the church. I don't find that. Well, it and doesn't, it doesn't say, very, perhaps we need to do some talking about typology. Typology, in my view, does not have to be clearly identified as a type in the New Testament scriptures. That's in order a presupposition. To be a, yes, it is. I, I, I freely admit that. Okay. Uh, but I think, it's a, I think it's a presupposition that we can demonstrate. What, what we are talking about when we talk about typology is that there is a, a typical correspondence, indeed a necessary correspondence between things God did during the Old Covenant period and things, God, things that God does in the New Covenant period. It, between, for instance, the old creation is a type, clearly a type of the new creation. Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 talks about the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, shining in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's saying what I did in the old creation is pointing, was pointing forward to what I'm doing in the new creation. Now in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, It seems to me that Peter teaches us that God clearly intended for Israel to, as a nation to stand as a type of the new covenant people of God. Beginning in, um, oh, we've been there before. Beginning in verse 7, Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. By the way, you'll recall that in the text from which this is taken, it says, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That is also referred to back in Matthew, where the, where the kings of the vineyard keeper's son is, is killed, the heir is killed, and it, that, that very passage is quoted there. This is the Lord's doing, it's marvelous in our eyes. And he, and he began to talk to them about it, and they, they perceived that he was talking about them. And he said, therefore, this, this nation, this, these promises are going to be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits of it. Now, in this passage, using the same verse, and it's obviously parallel in its, in its thought structure, he says, verse 8, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even to them which be disobedient, whereunto they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth, forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What was the purpose of Israel? Was it not to bring light to the nations? And what he's saying is Israel failed to do that. And now you, as the antitype, the fulfillment of that nation in the Old Testament scriptures, you are doing what Israel failed to do. You are the fulfillment of that nation. He has given it to a, to a nation bringing forth the fruits of it. Okay, I'll go so far with you on that and say I understand the similarity of language that he's taken it from this nation, which was described with the same words. Well, that's what I mean by typology. To, well, it doesn't say it's a type, though. And then to say that it's taken the place of it because it's typical, I don't find it saying that. We have similarity of language, okay. a similar description from the, language, the nation it was taken to to the nation it's given to, but that, that establishes or warrants this being replaced forever and always I don't see it warrants that. So, so what it boils down to is, is our presuppositions about what constitutes a type. And like I, I'm aware John was of the saying on the first day of our reading between the lines. I, I think we're reading between the lines to go beyond that to establish that that's forever and always taken the place of the nation it was taken from. That seems to be an assumption driving this. 
Do you have other lumps you need to talk about? Yeah, one of them directly related to this, and it, I don't think we're I don't think we're going to resolve this one. But I think what I'm not sure what, we what I hear <laughs> what I hear from my premillennial brothers, and I and I go away. I think of maybe a stronger premillennialist. Uh, is we're that glad to help. We haven't really addressed or fairly addressed what was broken off, and I think everyone's going to agree it wasn't the remnant that was cut off. And then when we get to the re-engrafting, that has not been fairly dealt with. We need to establish very clearly what was broken off, and whatever was broken off is going to be re-engrafted. And it wasn't the remnant. But you see, I'm not arguing. I'm not arguing. Well, no, it wasn't the remnant that continues now. Like Paul says, hey, I'm here. The remnant's still here. Yes, I'm not arguing. It's something other than just the remnant that's continuing in the church now. There's a re-engrafting coming. Something was broken off, and it wasn't those believers, because Paul says, I wasn't broken off. Okay, is he going to then go back and pick up those branches that in the first century were broken off and no, graft no, them no, in? No, 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 no. No, he's not going to do that. No, but in there... But, but see, you're arguing it was, it was, it was na the nation that was broken off. No, if we tie it okay. into First Peter but, but, 2. But you also have to see that it was those, those Jews in the first century that were broken off. Understood. But First Peter 2 so is taken to, from this nation and given to this nation. And the assumption is it will never ever, that that nation will never come back in that status it had then into that most favored nation status again. There's going to be a re-engrafting. John. Okay, sir. You want to stay a minute? Okay, I had one more look. Uh, the, in, in answer to 1 Peter, 1 Peter does not say that this is taken from a nation and given to another nation in any sense in any place. In Exodus chapter 19, this is the preamble to the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel that made them a body politic, that gave them specific government rules, laws pertaining to food, the whole business. Verse 4, you've seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you in eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant. We're not talking about something kingdom being here. We're talking about covenant. If you obey my covenant, then you will be a peculiar treasure unto me above all of the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Does that mean that if you don't do this, you will not be a peculiar treasure to me among all people? Yes. It does. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, or kings and priests, and a holy nation. Okay? Are these specific categorical promises given to the nation of Israel on the grounds that they obey his covenant? Everybody shaking their head, yeah. This is the first time today. Yeah. Mark it down. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now the passage in 1 Peter. And we have in the book of Hebrews where he is the surety of a better covenant. And the glory of the new covenant is not lower standards but that one has kept the terms of the covenant for us. Do we agree on that? All right. First Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness 
into his marvelous light. This says nothing about uh, transferring a kingdom from one nation to another. This is saying that the specific categorical blessings that were promised to the nation of Israel on the ground of their obedience to the covenant have now been given to the church. And the church is the holy nation that they never became. She is a kingdom of priests so that she inherits the specific categorical blessings that were promised in Exodus 19. If we want to go back and discuss the land promise in the covenant of Abraham, that would have to be discussed on a separate basis from this. In this passage, it is referring to a covenant that brought a nation into being and laws that governed them and a covenant that was given whereby they could gain these four blessings. And all we're saying is that when the New Testament looks at the church, that the New Testament sees the church as the holy nation to whom those promises were given in Exodus 19, but they were never experienced by that nation because it never kept covenant with God. We inherit those blessings. We are that holy nation. We are that peculiar treasure. We are that kingdom of priests because Christ has kept the covenant for us. That's all we're saying. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No condition. No. There is if you still... Stand up. I still find a problem with that if you don't see Israel being re-engrafted as a nation. Then all we're saying is fine. But where in Peter is there an indication that you have to have this repeated? There isn't. That, that you have to go back to the natural aspect of it. That's what we're saying. All we're saying is that when we come to the New Testament scripture, we're not saying this says Israel's forever finished. We're saying the promises made are fulfilled in Christ. If you want to extend them and have some more, go ahead. But you've got to get your evidence out of the New Testament. That's all we're saying. Well, out of the New Testament, I think you are saying that Israel, as understood when the branch is broken off, is forever finished because that's not going to be re-engrafted. As a nation? As understood when it was broken off. It with national privileges of one being above all of the nation? Yes, we'd agree with that. All right, let's look at one more passage and then we have to go home. I'm, I'm the boss. <laughs> let's, he, he had another lump. Yeah, oh, you had another lump? Go ahead. Oh, pardon me. I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, this is something I had addressed with John before and it seems to keep coming up. And uh, I think it's maybe the most fundamental or critical thing is the hermeneutic. And that's the one thing I think I'm struggling with more than anything else to understand how this could be or how it could be held consistently. And um, I'm looking at 5, 6, and um, I think it comes up in 7. Especially in 6 on page 11, the fulfillment of God's promises does not exhaust them. Promises to the nation of Israel that were literally fulfilled during the Old Covenant period, for example, deliverance from captivity, find their antitypical realization in the experience of God's new covenant people, for example, their deliverance from their captivity to sin. Mm -hmm. And this idea of seeing literal fulfillment in the Old Testament, and John started out on Monday by explaining if all he had was the Old Testament, he would see this literal or natural fulfillment and be a dispensationalist, but now we see the New Testament uh, applying a spiritual 
interpretation of the Old Testament, and therefore he's not a dispensationalist. And what I see going on there is maybe a failure to reckon with biblical theology. When the book of Genesis was written, those people had to have a hermeneutic to understand what it meant. There's a hermeneutic in biblical theology in the book of Genesis. And as we get our hermeneutic out of all 66 books of the Bible through the progress of Revelation, we don't end up with a double hermeneutic. There's a consistent, unified hermeneutic through Scripture. And I really have a problem with a double hermeneutic that sees literal here and spiritual here. And I would go back to Owen's dictum. There's only one meaning. Okay. Could I, I really have a serious problem with that okay. suggestion. Let, let me speak Fair to that question. because I think it's a good question. And that's, that's why I have said that I'm not sure which of the presuppositions you're making reference to. Is that the, the number six? Yeah. Where, where you the, the, fulfillment, the fulfillment of God's promises does not exhaust them. Promises to the nation of Israel that were literally fulfilled during the Old Covenant period, that is, deliverance from captivity, or, or for instance, deliverance from captivity, find their antitypical real, realization in the, in the experience of God's New Covenant people. There are, there are events in the Old Testament scriptures recorded for us that, that happened over and over and over again. And when they happen again, the writer looks back and he says, you see, this, this is like that was. It's happening again. It's happening again. And, and in, in, the, in the nature of typology, there is an escalation from the type to the antitype. There's moving, there's moving from, from the natural to the spiritual. You may have heard the, the type, the, the antitype is always better than the type. No question. You may have heard dispensationalists say this before, but we would point to that same scenario. How was it fulfilled then, this incident, that incident? Was it fulfilled literally? Well, how can we expect it to be fulfilled in the future? The same way. And I, and I would say no, because there is in fact that, that radical break that takes place at the cross. So that, so that we're now living in a, in a time in which fulfillment is taking place. Not in the hermeneutic, though. There's no break in the hermeneutic. That's, I think, where the rub is coming. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I There's no break in the hermeneutic. If that's how prophecy, the promises were fulfilled then, then that's how they will be fulfilled in the future. That, the cross did not bring a break in hermeneutic between the old and the new. I think he's saying you need to continue to do it um, literally throughout the New Testament. If that's how it was then, that's how it will be in the future. And, and I think the answer is no, because the promise that is made to natural Israel is a natural promise. I, that may be a and that natural, the, the fulfillment of that natural promise to that nation of Israel is a type of the spiritual promises that are also made in the Abrahamic covenant to Christ's seed, Christ and those who, who are in him. This dichotomy of natural and spiritual, there's one thing I haven't heard here at all. I'm a little surprised. Um, maybe it was implied in some things, and that's the concept of corporate solidarity that really the covenant is made with Christ, and in a very real sense, he is the covenant, and that Israel, in their relationship with him, and us, in our, our, the only way that we come in, certainly it was made with the house of Israel and Judah, and certainly we have our relationship to God on no other basis, but only because we're found in Christ, who is Israel, in a very real sense. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe I didn't say that in so many words this morning, but that was precisely what that I was That may preaching. be the resolution of that all of this. That was precisely, I think it is the resolution. But there's no dichotomy there of natural and spiritual in that concept of corporate solidarity but but there is there there is was natural Israel in corporate solidarity with Christ as a nation no no 
They our, were, our, na our, national our, Israel was in a place of unique blessing as a nation, not through the yes, regeneration they were. of the heart. Yes, they were. They're not were in that they, place now. But were they in a relationship of corporate solidarity with Christ? Not in a regenerative sense. Right. So that's two different things. So we're talking. That's why we haven't. But they're not. They're not. They're not totally separated. That, but when you say, when you when when you use the phrase in Christ, and and in the seed, and then you ask the question, was the nation of Israel in solidarity with Christ in the sense that they were in Christ and they are his real seed what he did he did for them what happened to him is going to happen to them, and the answer is no if you say Not in that sense no okay so there is a very real distinction and, and, and you hit the nail on the head when you say this is a problem. okay but because it's a because the true promises are made to Christ, never to the nation of Israel. Right. If it involves something that is spiritual, it always has to involve the keeping of the covenant. Mm -hmm. That's it. Okay, two passages. We're... You want to speak? He is the last one. Absolutely. And then we have to go home. There's been a lot of discussion on the branches. And I just want to address that as I see it. The branches that are fallen off or cut off are not all reprobate Jews. There's some elect in there. And when it says their fullness will come, the elect out of that are going to come. But in verse 23, and they also, if they abide not, still in unbelief. So that branch that's broke off, we can't just discard it because mm -hmm. there's the elect within it mm -hmm. and they will come. That's all I've got to say. Dr. Barnhouse was having difficulty and a difference of opinion with one of his elders and he said, let's have lunch together. And they had lunch together and uh, Barnhouse says, now we agree on this, right? He said, yes. He said, we agree on this. He said, yes. And he kept going, and he said, see, we're the same. And they went home. But it didn't resolve the differences. So next time they got together to resolve their differences, Barnhouse says, now you believe this? He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. We went down that road before. He said, let's start where we disagree. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've tried to agree and disagree both here. Ezekiel 34 is one of the passages that were mentioned this morning in the message. And I want you to look at it. And whatever you, you do, don't think that, that somebody of the other persuasion really doesn't believe the Bible and try to honestly understand it. And whatever you say, don't ever say to an all-mill or a pre-mill, you don't really believe what the Bible says. When you talk to an Arminian and he says, you don't believe the Bible, or if you say to him because he rejects election, you really don't believe the Bible. He does believe the Bible. With all of his heart, he believes it teaches election. No, he believes it doesn't teach election. And he knows somehow you're twisting it. He's just not smart enough to figure out how you twisted it. But he knows you're misusing it. And he's objecting because he loves God. He's objecting because he does love the scriptures. He has a twisted understanding of the scriptures. So don't throw at him, you don't believe the Bible, when really what you mean is you don't believe my interpretation of the Bible. 
And, and, and believing one's interpretation and believing in the inspiration of the Bible is two entirely different things. Don't ever confuse the two. And verse 22, Therefore I will save my flock, and they shall no more be a prey, and I will judge between cattle and cattle. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. Is he talking about the day when God is among the people of Israel in the future, or is he talking about now the church, or is he talking about both? And I will make with them a covenant of peace, and will cause the evil beast to cease out of the land, and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places around about my hill a blessing. And I will cause the shower to come down in his season. There shall be showers of blessing. And the tree of the field shall yield her fruit. And the earth shall yield her increase. And they shall be safe in their land. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them out of the hand of those that served themselves of them. Is that a prediction that has to do with the change in the environment? Is that talking about the deliverance of the nation of Israel from the yoke of bondage of the tyranny of her neighbors? And if one would be a historic dispensationalist, this is what he'd say, until he can see these things fulfilled, and if that's the way he approaches the text, that's exactly the way it came out. Or can these things be spiritualized? And can this yoke be the yoke of sin? And can these pictures be pictures of security and safety of the Christian in Christ and be spiritualized to mean salvation? And that's the question. And, and which, whichever approach to hermeneutics one takes, that's the view he's going to come up with this. So it is wrong to say you don't really believe the scriptures when he does. Verse 28, And they shall no more be a prey to the heathen, neither shall the beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and none shall make them afraid. Is this referring to physical animals, natural animals? Is it referring to a time when the nation of Israel shall dwell in the land and be free from wild beasts? Or is this a picture of the church and the security that she has in Jesus Christ? And I will raise up for them a plant of renown. And who is this plant of renown? What is this plant of renown? I would think it would be our Lord. Is that past or is that future? And they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land. Does this mean that in this day there's going to be plenty to eat, which it well might mean? Or is this talking about those who've ate the bread of life and shall never hunger? And neither bear the shame of the heathen anymore. Thus shall they know that I, the Lord their God, am with them. And that they, even the house of Israel, are my people, saith the Lord. And you are my flock. The flock of my pasture are men. And I am your God, saith the Lord. Is that all to be referred to Israel? Or is the house of Israel here? Can this be a reference if you spiritualize this and say, this is the church, this is the gospel age? You can see 
how, according to your hermeneutics, you're going to quote the passage of Scripture. Are all of these things in a spiritual sense true of us? Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a premillennial, unquestionably a premillennial, and was a mild dispensationalist. He would take a passage of Scripture like this, and he would almost always say, I know this pertains to the nation of Israel in the future. And then he would spiritualize it and apply it in a warm-hearted sermon. Was he legitimate in doing this? When we read about all these places uh, where these things are spoken of Israel, and in that day, and in that day, are we to understand these promises to be fulfilled in Christ, in the church, or are they to be fulfilled in a natural, literal sense in the future? Ezekiel 37, and then we close. And again, I want one more passage that we want to look at. Ezekiel 37, verse 24. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. And I think here that everybody will spiritualize David and say it means Christ. Is, is that right? Will, will anybody here say that has to be physical David? You wouldn't call that spiritualizing. Okay. And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd. And they shall walk in my statutes and observe my statutes to do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Is that tabernacle the church of the living God? Or is that the physical tabernacle rebuilt? Are we to understand this passage to being God in the midst of his people in the sense of the church as the tabernacle of God, or is this to be interpreted in a natural sense where there will be a literal tabernacle? And again, our hermeneutics will determine that. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of her forever. And it seems to me that demands either a natural fulfillment or a spiritual fulfillment, one of the two. And how we approach it is going to wind up where we are. Now, when we talk about spiritualizing, what was the word you used back there? When we, from our point of view, at least from my point of view, when I say that the New Testament spiritualizes the Old, and we're challenged, do, are we justified in doing that? When we come to Abraham and Abraham's call, how did Abraham himself understand the promise that was made to him of a dwelling place, of a land, of a habitation? And it seems to me when I come to Hebrews chapter 11, I would read the book of Genesis for a million years and would never come to the conclusion that the writer of the book of Hebrews came to. And that's what I mean when I say using the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Abraham came to that conclusion 
Hmm? Where? Yeah, but wait a minute. But I said, if I could read Genesis for a million years, I would never come to understand that Abraham came to that conclusion. And so we want to say, how did the, the person who heard a prophecy, how did he understand it? And in some cases, we may not know. In this case, we come to Hebrews chapter 11, verse, uh, pardon me, verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go into a place which he should afterwards receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. <laughs> By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, and heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose maker or builder and maker is God. Through faith Sarah herself received strength to conceive a seed, and so on. Verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of the country in which they came, they would have gone back, and so on. But now they seek a better country, that is, a heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. So that Hebrew tells us that while Abraham's feet were in the promised land, he was looking for a city whose maker and builder was God. Now I say again, I would read Genesis a thousand times and never be able to say Abraham was looking for a city that was spiritual, that was heavenly. But if I take Hebrews, am I justified in saying that Abraham understood the land to be symbolic of something greater? And, and that's what we mean when we say using the Old Testament to interpret the Old. Could you say the veil was upon their heart and not removed until Christ came and took it away? That's a whole nother can of worms. <laughs> I hate to be the last one, but that's the only way I can ever win. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're not going to have that. Uh, I would like to thank all of those who participated, uh, and especially in the way that you participated. I don't know about you, but I learned some things here. Uh, Randy Seavers said the other day when the post mill brother was speaking, he says, I think he converted me. Uh, he gave me some things to think about. When I listen to somebody who doesn't agree with me, at least you learn how they think. And, and the worst thing in the world is to caricature what people really think and say, you're saying this when you're not saying that. Now, we didn't resolve all the problems, but I think we at least understand each other better. And I will pray faithfully for you. Feel honest, I will. <laughs> Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we belong to you and that you belong to us. That we are yours by your sovereign electing grace. We're yours by your sovereign power. We thank you for that. We thank you that though our Views on some things may differ. Our affections are on the same person. 
And because of who he is and what we are in him, we cannot be divided. We may have differences, and we will work on resolving those differences, but there will not be divisions because we all belong to the same Lord. And our hope for tomorrow is the gospel, and our hope forever is the gospel. And what happens or doesn't happen to physical, natural Israel, we know that you are going to be honored and glorified, and that we want to please you in all that we do, for Christ's sake. Amen.